Hello everyone, welcome to the Youth Critic Podcast on the Youth Critic Network. Welcome to the Youth Critic Retrospectives. I am your host, Kale Smith. Joining me this week is David Weiser from Film Assessment. Hey, everybody. And today we have two guests. Uh, we have Brandon Cooley from Bad Symphony Productions. Hey, everyone. And also we have uh, our, we also have an educator with us, uh, Christy Radborn. Hi, everyone. Uh, who also is my aunt. (laughs) So I just have to, I'm going to throw, so I'm just going to throw that out. Um, All right. So uh, Christy, um, since you are the big, big guest, Brandon's already been on a couple times. What movie are we talking about today? The Return of the King from the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Well, trilogy plus the prequel sequel. Absolutely. The never-ending, not the never-ending story, but sometimes the never-ending story. <laughs> hey, it's the nature of the beast now. Um, but yes, we are here to talk about the final, well, the final chapter in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, uh, Peter Jackson's three-part saga from 2001 to 2003. Uh, we are uh, talking, we will be referring both to this theatrical cut and extended editions. Uh, so if you hear something that, you know, or we talk about a scene that wasn't from, that you don't remember quite, it probably is from the extended cut. Um, I, I think I can speak for the panel here that we all recommend the extended cut. Uh, uh, but with that said, um, just kind of going into it, um, uh, Christy, since you are the uh, guest, um, what is your relationship to Lord of the Rings and what is your relationship to Return of the King, the movie? So, yeah, it's kind of funny. I picked up the tr- the books and I would say around 1983 um, for the first time and I read them all and then I have, I think I have like five different copies and I have a limited edition bound leather copy of the Hobbit. <laughs> so you could say that if I had a place, in fact, and then in my at least three birthdays in a row in my teens, I also held Hobbit birthdays in which I gave out the gifts instead of otherwise. So you could say there was a 
a bit of a chronic fandom, it would be me. But I ended up also following it, the the trilogy itself, but the sort of the backstory of Tolkien and where he, why he was writing it and the times he was writing it in and sort of the analogy to, you know, the rise of the dark in the, in, in Europe during the war and kind of how that plays out as a theme throughout. So yeah, that's kind of my relationship. The Return of the King is my favorite one because Aragorn finally gets to say, you know, run front center stage left, the kind of deal. And he's, uh, and, and, you know, we get really to the meat of kind of the undoing. We also, I think the depth of the characters, you know, they, they become something more than the adventurer or sort of the lost person or the hobbit. We start to really see who they are as personalities um, and, and, and I always found it, it's probably a, a, a sort of a recurring thing for me that the littlest of us is the greatest of us. And ultimately that that's probably one of my favorite parts of it. So it's, uh, yeah, yeah, I couldn't wait for it to come out as a movie. I must've seen it a dozen times and I read the books over and over again still to this day and I'm 52. <laughs> so <laughs> that's kind of my relationship to the whole trilogy. Um, and uh to specifically return of the king but yeah i, I think uh because we finally get everybody come gets this chance to come into their own in this movie or in this part of the trilogy and you know we see their their true characters their strengths and we get a better understanding even of the villain as we go along quote not the big villain <laughs> not sauron but the but the um but Gollum, and i think Gollum's story is a is a missed opportunity in that whole space so Oh, really? Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, and then Brandon, what's your, uh, what is your take on Return of the King? So uh, I don't really have a, a, a distinct memory of seeing this as much as the first two movies because they have a special place in my heart, like running them on VHS and DVD back when I was a kid and watching them at home. But I did see Return of the King in the theaters and at this point, up until then, that was the longest movie I'd ever seen until then. Like, I didn't know what an intermission was. And so halfway through it, just cuts out. I'm like, what happened? And my parents had to explain, oh, well, it's halfway over. We have to, we can go to the restroom now and come back and get snacks. I'm like, oh, wow, it's that long of a movie. How cool is that? You know, so that was kind of fun. And yeah, I, um, yeah, I, I really like Return of the King. I've always tried to figure out if it's better or worse than Two Towers, because those two are always second place for me. Fellowship has a special place in my heart. And, but yeah, I love Return of the King. It's a great finale. Um, not very many complaints about it. Um, I will just, the elephant in the room, I will defend the ending, the, the final 20 minutes, the epilogue. It's always been my favorite part of the movie and people have always complained about it or some people have. And I, it always gets, it always moves me emotionally. I feel like um, mm -hmm. those last 20 minutes, especially the final scene. Um, and I was just thinking uh, before getting on the podcast that there is a YouTube video it's really great if you guys haven't seen it, where a YouTuber who loves Lord of the Rings shows his family the, the trilogy who've never seen it before, even know what it is. And his mom does not like science fiction or fantasy, doesn't even like the, the beginning of the, of the first movie. But by the trilogy, by the end of it, she is like crying. She is like she is so emotionally invested in Lord of the Rings, this person who doesn't like fantasy. And so I think it's fascinating how this trilogy has such a universal appeal with people. And I think that, yeah, the the. Return of the King is a sticks the landing in that regard. Oh my gosh! Uh, and, and David, yes, David. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I, I've already kind of talked about my relationship with uh, Tolkien in the books, and 
uh, watching the movies in the previous two podcasts. So I'll just kind of focus more specifically on Return of the King. Um, this is also probably the first, the longest, the, my first really long movie that I saw growing up as well. Um, this is the first time, uh, as, as I've mentioned in the previous podcast, this is my first time going through the extended editions. So that's been uh, a nice adventure and kind of seeing, like kind of see, noticing what's the, uh, what scenes were are in the extended that I don't, I wasn't familiar with from the theatrical and kind of what differences there are, like was a nice, I, I knew about some of the things, especially having read the books, but like, um, I, I was just surprised how much more material was in the film. Uh, even like, especially, I, it's, I think it has the most additional uh, footage of the three. Because uh, I, I think it, it pumps it up to about four hours or a little bit I over it's four hours. Four hours and 23 minutes on YouTube. And I think the, the, the theatrical is like three and a half. Sounds right. Uh, yeah, that's close. Yeah, that's close to it. Um, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then, actually, I'm glad you're here, uh, Aunt Christy, because um, the first time I saw this movie, The Return of the King, was actually when you and I were at Christmas, one like 15, 16 years ago. Mm -hmm. I had just, I probably had just either, either somebody had bought me the the the, the DVD set, or uh, I bought it on my own from Target. Uh, I had watched the other two movies, really loved it. Uh, and then you and I sat through Return of the King and we sat through all of it, not realizing, thinking we would only get like two hours, three hours or two and a half hours into it. <laughs> and by the end of it, like we're sitting there at like 1230 at night, just like watching Frodo sail away. And, uh, yeah. and I'm just like, I, I can't believe like, this is it. Like this is the culmination of the trilogy like as a 12 year old i can't believe this is how we end our story this is the main character just going mm -hmm. away like it, it had such a profound effect on me like story-wise because the main character usually always has like a happy ending i mean mm -hmm. even harry potter many years i mean in deathly house part two many years later i mean even his story he still has scars but they don't hurt they don't like they don't like he's more, more removed from it, removed from the trauma of what he has experienced with the Voldemort. And I actually think it's a happy ending though, but I interpret I, yeah. it that. Yeah, I have a theory behind what is actually the, the meaning behind it, the, that, but right. we'll, we'll get to that later. Right, yeah. as a 12 year, right, but as a 12 year old, it was like a character, just seeing a character not being able to like, let it go, mm -hmm. like not be able mm -hmm. to just walk into the sunset so easily. Well, and uh, well, I think, he's sick. Yeah, good. I think like something Brandon was alluding to, and, and even David, when you're talking in your talk, so one of the things Tolkien did is to really capture that whole, in a non human way, that human story. And the reality that, especially, I love the end when you talk about the end scenes, the very end, is, end scenes of the movie. And you know, when Sam Gamgee is very simply in it back in Hobbiton and he, you know, he's in the little, the, um, the cantina or the little restaurant bar and that, that, that really that nails home that it is the simple of us, simplest of, of us and the simplest of pleasures that are what um, we need to attend to. And there's a more 
he can't cope with what seen and what he's been through and he's going to he's going to waste and there's a comment there on all those that went away to do sort of the, the fighting and the conflict that Tolkien you know mirrors through his world there's a comment on what it does and what it takes away and the idea the hopeful idea that uh, someone like Frodo gets to go somewhere and be you know and be and live out their days in that peace and harmony but that the whole action that happened and all of that, you know, great world altering, world shaking conflicts, the distillation of it at the end, that it's that simple life that we were preserving or that that was most important. And um, the fact that there, it's not lost that the fact that the Hobbit um, themselves remain the heroes and the ones able to withstand because they are really connected to those simple pleasures. And there's so many themes about how greed has corrupted all, you know, others and how worldly pleasures and the, and the disconnection from the simple things in life corrupt and that it's just, you know, and, and I think too, one of the things that always amazes me in return of the King, particularly for novice viewers is the ability to maintain all the multiple stories that are going on. Because in the book, you know, you can go from chapter to chapter or parts of chapters and follow other people's stories in a movie. It's very hard to do and keep the continuity um, in terms of characters and the action theme. And, and it's just, it moves through all those stories and wrapping them all up really well. So that yeah, was pretty, quite quite a feat actually, cin cinematography wise, I think. Yeah, as a um, yeah as a kid, I didn't really fully understand the final scene actually. I thought it was just two best friends saying goodbye to each other, but really growing older, what it's actually about is it's commenting on the fact that some people have to settle down, some people have to sell off. There's yeah. no wrong, right or wrong answer to that. It's just, yeah. it's not even two types of people, but like same as one has to settle down, Frodo has to sail off. They have to say goodbye to each other because one or the other is more fulfilling to you. And then in the beginning of Fellowship, Bilbo was telling Gandalf, Gandalf, I have to leave the Shire. I've got to see mountains. I've got to see more. I got to, you know, leave. And it's like, well, why do you want to leave? The Shire is a beautiful place. It's great. But the, the idea of it is that sometimes we have to step out of our comfort zone and leave the Shire, you know, and, and some people don't want to, and that's great too, but Frodo in the end realizes he has to. That's, I always love that dynamic at the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also, I mean, it's responding to all of what uh, you guys are saying. It's just tragic because Frodo's the one that had to bear it all. He had to, he's the one, I mean, Aragorn has his own stuff happening. Sam has the weight of being the best friend. Um, I mean, everyone has their own journey, but Frodo's the one that has to bear the sacrifice of carrying the ring forward and having the I, the the power of the ring influence him and constantly bear with him. So to see his whole world change is incredible. And also it's even more poignant in that time because we were about to, or maybe we were, I think we were even about to or enter like war with Iraq and Afghanistan. So we were about to have another conflict war happening in that to so to see war depicted again and to have the characters at the end make decisions that of how to handle their own PTSD of a situation. I felt that was so incredible and so poignant to have in a fantasy movie where mm -hmm. Peter Jackson really came into it just wanting 
to just have like uh, just adapt Tolkien's work the way Tolkien would have wanted it and Tolkien's work just somehow like still in the early 2000s just meant so much like it meant like it was so poignant in that moment of time uh during you know all of what was happening in the early 2000s to I, I felt like Jackson just hit the nail in an unintentional way, but in still a poignant way. To yeah. yeah, the yeah the messaging is is universal and the themes are you know eternal. Yeah, I was gonna say I think mm -hmm. that Tolkien intended it to be based on the history of all wars, not really any particular mm -hmm. war. And Jackson, there's there wasn't much he could do that really connected to the war happening in the early 2000s i don't know if there's too many comparisons but i think it's universal because it's about the human experience in war and like the whole dynamic with that and yeah because um, i mentioned last time last episode that the two towers the helms deep and rohan kind of scenario it's probably most reflected it's it reflects a lot in like ukraine right now like what they're experiencing no way they could have predicted that but it just shows you how it's timeless because it applies to you know so many types of you know uh, scenarios like that and, and I think an interesting, like, even if you were to look at today and, and, it, and whether it was that time period or when he wrote an interesting underlying theme there is that that kind of evil, that kind of greed, that whatever you want to attribute to Sauron, that corruption is something that is, it, it exists in like a heart space and it's really hard to root out. And it, it, even though, you know, you can, you can cover it up and you can hide it for a while, but that, that idea that that corruption could just poison and continue to poison that poison could grow and affects the way people react um to their worlds and changes their you know sort of their interactions is really an interesting piece i think one of the cool things about it i read the silmarillion which is a companion that he wrote basically the silmarillion is it explains the histories of the worlds and the languages because tolkien actually created i think it's three full languages um, complete with dialectic structures, gra grammar, um, vocabulary, of course, for the these books. And so it it just, I think that contributes to its realism and its universality. I think the fact that it's not like, you know, there's not a it really any contrived piece and Jackson made, manages to capture that, that piece that it's not, it, it doesn't feel made up even though it's quite fantastical. You almost feel like you're witnessing the beginning, you know, and, and there's there's certainly a, a point there that I can't remember if it's Gandalf who says it or who says it. They know that all else except man, and I don't remember which book it was in, is going to fade. And so there's this idea that this is kind of where we came from. So this these societies and these kinds of, you know, Tol uh, Tolkien's dwarves and elves were all there before we were. And that it was... For whatever reasons you know that the age moves out of the mystical and into the human um there's something something interesting about that but yeah absolutely and <clears throat> yeah absolutely and and in the midst of all of this there's you know in the midst of all this there is i'm trying to think in the midst of all the greed, you get to see the antithesis of it with Gollum and Smeagol in that relationship, uh, which to me has, like, it, it builds on even more. I think, Brandon, you brought up on the last episode 
there was an interesting cinematography angle where they cut back and forth between Gollum's perspective and Smeagol's perspective in the conversation. Here, they break those rules when Smeagol, like during the pond scene where Smeagol and Gollum are talking, they're plotting the Hobbit's death or Sam and Frodo's death. And, <clears throat> and it breaks because finally Smeagol's just finally given into Gollum's plan, like given into Gollum's. And you just see like, Gollum and Smeagol, they're just now one person. There's no separating. There's no pushing Gollum away. Gollum is just now controlling Smeagol. Like, that's how, and not even in a, like, controlling, like, magical way, just in a manipulative way. Like, he's finally won Smeagol over to his plan. And I kind of have loved, like, how that has just rotted this character's brain for 500 years. Because it's specific that... <laughs> This character, <laughs> the ring has just prolonged <clears throat> has prolonged this character's life so long that now he has no. He's not even a hobbit. He's just this entity. He's just this creature. But uh, there's a for that, Kale, because one, you know, they talk about that ring, those rings of power for men to wield them, dwarves to wield them, for everybody else to wield them. They literally almost instantaneously change shape and just melt the personality out of them. And I think that was one of Tolkien's big messages was that these hobbits, what everybody discounts as the simplest of us, um, lasts longer than anybody else would have lasted with the in possession of that ring. And, and that's why I think Gollum is a really unexplored kind of opportunity in terms of strength and resiliency it's kind of a interesting little guy <laughs> it is it is i think they and i do think they try to juxtapose that with frodo because frodo is constantly looking at Gollum as like this is what i will become if i don't destroy mm -hmm. the ring so I think for them, they were trying to bring those ideas and trying to reflect them onto Frodo. But I also believe too that to explore it even more, because we the only big like Gollum moment of exploration is that montage in the beginning of this movie, where we just see like over a period of time, like how the ring has just, you know, morphed him into Gollum. Or morphed him into mm -hmm. what he from Andy Circus to Gollum. So yeah. Um, did, did you want to, David? Did you have something to say on it? Yeah, if, if I could talk about that that montage in particular, like that scene, um, I think that kind of encapsulates so much of the entire trilogy. As we kind of were talking about so much of Gollum's importance in the story in our Two Towers discussion, um, like just just seeing like as we were just referring to even like how seeing how the ring corrupts him and i think it's very essential to see him as a hobbit but like in order to see what Gollum was to like have this idea of just even though you look at Gollum, you look at this okay this creature has clearly been rotted away and like he's clearly a shadow of his former self i think seeing his former self really accentuates that in a way and um one thing I noticed in this viewing that I hadn't even thought of before is that Andy Serkis, the voice that he uses as, for Smeagol as the Hobbit, he speaks with the same kind of mannerisms and the same kind of accent, I guess, um, that he does once, even after he's been transformed. Even though Gollum has, he has a little, he got, as Gollum, he has different mannerisms and um, ac like a, a different voice for it, like by like subtle changes, but like, 
his voice for Smeagol like remains constant through this progression. And then I, I also like, um, I love how in that progression, they kind of have uh, those like in-between phases where they got to use some practical effects, which I imagine, cause I, I know they had at one point wanted to accomplish Gollum through um, practical effects and makeup. And so I had imagined that's where that kind of originated from was like, okay, here's our rejected ideas. Let's use for these like in-between stages of, from uh, the progression from Hobbit to uh, whatever Gollum is now. And then they eventually went to the motion capture and like that, that whole montage just encapsulates so much of who Gollum is and a, a vast majority of it, aside from him struggling to obtain the ring is communicated through visual storytelling and it's done so well. Absolutely. Yeah, with, uh, with Golem, something I was always fascinated by, and I may be repeating something someone already said because I was disconnected for a moment, but with Golem, but um, uh, so with Go so when we see the montage in the beginning, the first movie, we see the uh, when Golem is mentioned, um, we see the hand picking up the ring in the sand underwater, and that's it. And we cut to Golem um, in the cave or whatever. But in Return of the King, we see that scene play out as it actually did, and it's actually his friend in the boat who picks up the ring. And, and Smeagol kills him the moment he picks up the ring. Like, so that was kind of an interesting twist in a, in a way, because we always assumed that, that Smeagol found the ring. Well, he didn't really find it. He just, he was with his friend who found it. Um, and that's kind of fascinating. But I've always been, it's interesting because everybody likes the spider scene, but I've always been uh, more interested in the scene between Frodo and Gollum the moment after it happens, where, you know, uh, Frodo tells uh, Gollum that he still has to finish the, the you know, the mission. He still has to throw the ring and, Mordor and the expression that Golem has on his face it's like a close-up and the fact that they did this with motion capture back then that was this detailed his eyes grow big and he has this grimace on his face and it's terrifying more terrifying than the actual spider I think in, this, in yeah. some ways because he just attacks Frodo and he just falls right off the cliff right immediately after it's it's a wonderful sequence in my opinion but and I was going to also mention too that I I named my favorite characters of each movie up until this point. So Gandalf's my favorite of the first movie. Um, Golem's my favorite in the Two Towers. My favorite character in Return of the King is actually Sam. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. Fascinating <laughs> character because he almost becomes like the hero in the last like 45 minutes of the movie. Yeah. Um, and it's like he's trying to figure out, he's trying to weigh the, the benefit of like having Golem guide them to Mordor versus then Golem betraying them. Like, because at a certain point they can go on without him. But he has to figure out what, what moment that is. It's going to be after the spider, but Sam doesn't know that's coming up. He he assumes there's going to be a trap, but he's not 100% sure. And it's really interesting the way that dynamic plays out between the two of them. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah I'd agree. Yeah, well, because a stroke of brilliance, you cut to Sam waking up after they mentioned the spider, it, just only hearing the last part of the plan. So that that's yeah. so that's why like you know like Sam knows there's a plan but he doesn't know what the plan is. Yep. So yeah, it it is, and then also I mean Sam just has a great. I mean, I don't. Someone can correct me, and but I'm not. I don't know exactly what Sam's arc is in the story, other than but he is such a great supporting character, especially at the very end here when he's just i mean lifting frodo who's just like fallen to the ring just given everything to the ring 
and he's just carrying on his back and then so and then that and then he carries him to like the rock path and uh and then they're attacked by Gollum but I mean even then like he's like all he can do when Gollum and Frodo are fighting at the very end and like all he can do is just watch these two like addicts just go at it just like yeah they fight like like because he's got a mild concussion and he's probably upset with Frodo take you know putting on the ring so I mean he's just like watching these two fight over the ring and all he can do just hopelessly watch as they fall over each other to catch well, the he has to negotiate too. the trying to keep he's the character that keeps the thread of frodo alive um while mm-hmm. watching him deteriorate and he has to negotiate those two people that are emerging or two you know personas that are emerging from frodo as he gets deeper and deeper into the ring and deeper into the struggle and he he manages to find that balance and keep him pulled out of it and he you know he's really up until then in, in fact he's characterized almost as kind of a like a buffoon (laughs) until you know you get to this movie and I would agree this is about the moment where he comes into his own and um and he does some real complex for for a character he has some real complex duties and and it's interesting to watch them play out in the in the film Mm -hmm. yeah and then we have to talk about the other great character that has an arc in this really the whole trilogy is Aragorn I mean, yeah. he's my favorite. Go, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. No, 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 really. He is. Like, he is the greatest because we enter this character who's basically kind of like a nomad. He's basically, you know, this, you know, outdoors, like, I just want to be on my own kind of guy. And in the fellowship, he ends with, like, basically, like, making a silent promise to Boromir to not be that person anymore. And then, end of the second movie, he basically does take on more and more of a role of a man of a king or at least a a captain if you will for Rohan and then in this one I mean he finally accepts the mantle of it what it means and he finally accepts like you know his relationship to uh Arwen um unfortunately he has to break mildly break up with Eowyn even though their relationship was not always very clear in these. I've movies. always been Team Awen, by the way. I've always, <laughs> I, I thought they should have ended up together. I, that's just me, but yeah. So Awen is Ophelia, right? We got that. Okay. Like she's she's the Ophelia of this whole movie. She's the tragic female, um, you know, unrequited. Um, there's nothing for her, uh, sort of thing. Yet she's integral to what happens in the action, particularly coming out of part two. But yeah, she's she's the Ophelia of this movie, and or this whole trilogy really. And yeah, you you find that, and that I think again we go back to that realism of it. We there is no easy way out for anybody here. Like no nobody wins everything. You know, Aragorn does. You know, but he has to reject Eowyn, and and in minus in in the the battle to retrieve minus Tirith. You know, there are so many losses for him, and even gaining Arwen, Arwen has to up her immortality to go to that. So there are no easy wins here. Nobody, nobody walks away unscathed, which is reality. You know, nobody, there's no, you know, it's not, it's not like a Disney film. (laughs) Yeah. Elrond loses a daughter, but in the end, he gains his faith in man again through his daughter. 
so yeah, I mean, that's true. I mean, in our I mean, to be fair, Aowen does get Faramir, but in an addition. Floppy seconds. <laughs> yeah, that's like, you know, I could have been queen versus uh I guess Faramir gets to be a lord or something, like gets to be yeah. someone important, like a nobleman, you know, maybe. So funny when you first see the theaters, yeah. uh, Aowen and Faramir are sitting next to each other, and you're like, "Well, they looks like they're together." I'm not sure though. And then you finally see the extended edition, you're like, "Oh, they are." Okay, that's yeah, it's kind of interesting. <laughs> it's like but one they're both damaged goods at that point, right? And <laughs> so there's, you know, even though they'll go forth and have a relationship, they're they're both it's like a PTSD sort of relationship, and so it, it's just it's interesting how. Like nobody comes out of the whole thing unscathed. Uh, there's just no solid winners, right? <laughs> Everybody's a winner, but not really. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. Yeah. yeah, even Sam, I mean, going back to Sam, he, he has a family and he gets the girl at the end, but I mean, he loses Frodo like years yeah. later, so. And, yeah. the, and the, just the experience that the years it takes off of them and the, you know, the trauma they'll carry with them forever. Right. Character, but. Mm-hmm. I've always and liked the scene too, where Gandalf just beats up the steward. The uh, what's his name? <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> like, what a great oh. scene! Right? Oh, the old the old guy from Minas Tirith. Yeah, that one? yeah, yeah. Minas Tirith. Yeah, because I just like the fact that you get you finally meet him, and well, he showed up in the extended edition two towers, but in the theatrical, you finally meet him in Return of the King, and he's like just he's mentally ill. It's like I you're not expecting that in Lord of the Rings because you're used to like good versus evil. But here's this guy who just cannot run his own kingdom. Yeah. And it's like, what are they going to do? Well, they can't do anything because he's just crazy. And it's like, well, <laughs> Gandalf has to take over. You know, that's just the way it has to be. That's <laughs> always like well, that. Well, I mean, he's ridden by his grief, but also his hubris because he sent his favorite son, uh, Boromir, to go fetch the ring and for him to use it um, against Sar- uh, Saruman and Sauron. Uh, but uh, Boromir failed, and and of course, like, and now he's stuck with his least favorite son. Uh, which truly, uh, Faramir gets a really like massive mutual mental abuse beating from his father. <laughs> yeah. Oh God! Like this, just a scene of like when you know Faramir just asked his father outright, "Do you wish I would have just died?" In and Boromir would have lived in in John Noble's character is like uh yeah yeah just continues eating it's just yeah. so and then and then him sending Faramir to what would what we would have are assuming is his death with all of yeah. those other men and this hopeless quest to retake um Os- Osgiliath Osgiliath yeah Osgiliath um to retake that and like and then I love the, I mean, everyone always talks about it, but like the cut as he's eating, um, just the way that that montage is edited, uh, as he's eating his food, just like devouring it and breaking the the turkey, like the drumsticks. And then um, Pippin is singing to him, or is it, yeah, oh, Pippin is yeah, Pippin singing says, to him. Yeah, Pippin says him in a yeah. Uh, yeah. Incredible scene. <laughs> Oh my god! Yeah, and, and that's you know, there's another that you just hit on something else. You know, we talk about Sam, Sam, sort of un, un understated character, and and Pippin as well. And it's Pippin who keeps that whole place afloat 
Like mm-hmm. <laughs> he keep, you know, he plays the game and keeps that whole place afloat until Aragorn can get there and Faramir can be rescued and they can come back and take the city and Gandalf can do his thing. But it's it's Pippin holding all those little threads together, whether you know, being a clown or a servant or whatever he's doing. Um, that and that's an interesting, I, I had kind of forgotten about his role in that space because and and so there you have like hobbits are kind of holding those threads together all over you know the the um the movie and the storyline it's kind of interesting and that's why people and that's why everyone bows to them because they are literally the ones saving the day they are literally keeping everybody together yeah Um, the line that you bow to no one is a great line that Aragorn gives at the end but yeah also kind of unexpected that Pippin ends up being more of a developed character than Mary I I think everybody was surprised by that in the last movie because for a while Mary seems like the one who's kind of like between the two of them is kind of leading the you know what they're doing Mm -hmm. in the woods and two towers and all that and Pippin ends up being the one who touches the orb you know the I'm not sure what it's called but the thing that um that Saruman had and he ends up being the one sent to you know Minas Tirith with Gandalf and yeah. yeah talk about a, talk about a two people who like are completely different i, I love that that gandalf and pippin are teamed up together yeah. <laughs> I, no one could have expected they that hate each other like yeah yeah and yeah. You know, I, yeah like gandalf really doesn't like pippin pippin probably likes gandalf but you can tell that he he knows that gandalf doesn't respect him that's i love that dynamic the fact that by the end of that they're really good friends that's yeah. another small detail that's another like. another little detail yeah yeah well, and Pippin has, there's that scene where they're like barricading the gate and Gandalf and uh, Pippin, they're like on these stairs just waiting for the orcs to pop through. And there's a great moment where Pippin's like, I didn't think it would end this way. End? No, the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path, one that we almost take. Grey rain curtain of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass. And then you see it. What? Gandalf? See what? White shores. And beyond. The far green country. Swift sunrise. That isn't so bad. No. No, it isn't. The reason why I feel like Ian McKellen got snubbed for best act best supporting actor in this movie is that scene. Because that scene where he's just talking about the gray heavens and what you know what happens after death it's just like oh it's so beautiful i mean just the way even like how he looks into the can not even look at the camera but looks to the side like an old grandpa it's just so beautiful and warm and howard shore's music is just incredible the whole way through it's so beautiful um i it's so touching and moving and it's broken by the sound and cut of the orcs about to pop through. But like, it's just like a great little moment between the two where, you know, Gandalf gets to talk a little bit about his experience with death and uses that as a comforting for Pippin. 
Yeah. So it's great. Um, and yep, then... you get to come back and wear white in style, like just like Gandalf and Middle Earth, apparently. <laughs> That's a, yeah. So we do have to talk about one more unfortunate thing, and that is, uh, so in the theatrical cut, we don't see so- any what happens to Saruman after the our fellowship kind of come to. Um, What's the tower that uh, Saruman holds? Does anyone remember? Isengard. Isengard. Isengard, yeah. So after the crew gets to Isengard, basically Saruman is just out of the picture in the theatrical cut. But in the extended cut, we get a whole scene where Saruman and Gandalf are like dueling uh, with words and magic. And then uh, Saruman is stabbed by Wormtongue and thrown off the ledge of uh, Isengard. And so I, I always found this scene kind of weird because A, it should have really been maybe the end of part two, but also mm-hmm. you if you put that at the end of part two, you sacrifice the big line that Gandalf has, you know, Battle of Helm's Deep is over, the war for Middle Earth is about to begin. You sacrifice that. But so I kind of want to ask everyone's opinion, like should like how should they have done Saruman better? Because he's a good me, villain. Yeah, it's he's a great villain. Yeah, for me, I I think that the fact that Wormtongue stabs Saruman is a great storytelling element. But to be honest, that scene wasn't filmed as well as the rest of the movie. And I think Peter Jackson is a good enough filmmaker. He knew that. He saw in the editing room. And he's like, you know what? Not the best day on set, or something. Ha- something happened where I don't think that. The, the fact that, you know, Saruman has to fall and then gets the, impaled on whatever it was, it's like, well, you know, he was, he already lost, you know, that's already, the, the scene where the trees are taking over Isengard, that's the dramatic finale of Two Towers. Yeah, that's the best part. So I don't, I think the Wormtongue stabbing Saruman at the end of Two Towers may have worked better, because it would have been like adding, you know, salt to the wound, so to speak, with Saruman, you know, like he already lost Isengard. He's going to get stabbed by his own, you know, uh, minion or his own uh, henchman. Henchman, yeah. And then it's kind of, it's kind of interesting that like the henchman of the middleman is the one that like takes him out. Like, so like Saruman is like indebted to Sauron and then to be taken out by his own henchman, (laughs) like there's kind of some dramatic irony in that. Yeah, and they don't I loved the two towers mostly because of the ants, the trees. And that's like my favorite part where they rise up. And um, because for me, that's like, you know, that's nature finally saying we're all done with your shenanigans. And so we're going to take back what's ours and a, a power even much more ancient than, than the other powers. But I, I find you're right in the two towers. I don't think that Saruman's story it was it was a thin bitter thread and so i think it's difficult to make a lot of it because there's just nothing there's no duality to saruman saruman was just bad and and i think that makes him less of a character than all the other characters because everybody has their own wrestle with their demon um everybody's got you know can see their bad side and their good side and we see it come out and we see them almost often throughout all the all three of the stories warring with those pieces but this is just he's just like a thin evil character (laughs) he's just you hate him you want him to die you're happy when he's gone (laughs) and thanks (laughs) yeah i think i'd say the the bat like 
Oh, like yeah. as you were you're referring to them having a war for their souls, so to so to speak. Saruman, that happened off screen for him, right? Whereas, right. Okay, like, yeah. he's already lost to the evil and is already indebted to Sauron at the beginning of Fellowship, or when we when we meet him. And so, I would say, like, that happened for him. We just didn't get to get to see it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was gonna say, I think that uh, Christopher Lee really sells Saruman because it is a basic kind of villain. But man, Christopher Lee is a great actor. I mean, <laughs> and he's the best part of Tower Ta- of uh, of Attack the Clones, Count Dooku. That's a bad movie. It's not even. A- oh yeah, yeah. yeah Dooku, Christopher yeah. Lee's just that good, you know. And the interesting thing is that out of every single cast member, probably set he is the tolkien expert of lord of the rings yeah. um he he read the books like every day or at night every year he would read one of the books i think he said on the special features so he knew what he was doing with saruman um yeah, he might have won gandalf instead as a character to play him but yeah he's great at saruman though just in terms of being threatening but, yeah. yeah and that's why why i'm kind of just slightly disappointed not to preview the hobbit discussion ahead of time um but uh like i'm a little just disappointed like so does saruman just never like was he ever a good person at all like was he ever? oh yeah no he was the head of the wizard council the white wizard i mean you go back and what's the the brown wizard right radagast radagast thank you radagast i mean you know they were all they were the original that cast you know saruman or sorry saran locked him up in his in his hole there in mordor and you know thought they had taken care of the whole thing um but somewhere along the way he got corrupted and he didn't win his battle so but yeah no there was a time where he was a good character i, I like the idea that gandalf and saruman used to be close friends or like co-workers yeah. almost and yeah. you kind of get that sense in the very opening scene or the very the first scene between the two of them in the fellowship where Gandalf doesn't know that Saruman is basically evil now. But uh, yeah, after that point, he's just kind of a basic villain with minions, who, you know, the Nisengard and all that. So. Yeah, he has the Urukai, the, yeah, Urukai. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I just always had to bring that up because A, there's a funny story behind it in that Christopher Lee was so unhappy that his death scene got cut out of the movie. <laughs> um, and uh and but you see this scene and you're like yeah this is extended cut like this like when they get there and they find you know pippin and mary you know just you know you know smoking some you know what is it called the high bottom leaf um long oh, bottom, yeah, leaf. bottom leaf tobacco yeah it's a kind of tobacco yeah like they're just like you know enjoying their victory you know that's all there needs to be you know honestly that's a basic a basic uh solution to that scene would have been if uh, saruman wasn't high up or if saruman and Wormtongue weren't so high up in the air talking to them down down below if they were just like close they were on the you know same level it would have been a much more dramatic scene i don't know it's kind of a weird like uh solution to it but i think it would have been um better if like They'd already put, you know, Saruman in um, hand, not handcuffs, but chains, you know, I've already captured him basically. Mm-hmm. And Wormtunk still stabs him. You know, something like that would have made more sense. But yeah, small complaint though for the extended edition. But. I wonder if like the maybe kind of the mentality behind the blocking and staging of that scene is like kind of this idea of you're being locked up in your tower, like yeah. you're very, um, and like kind of him 
looking down on them still, even though he's already lost kind of this uh, kind of to add kind of to what his, his, he has a little, he has, so he has pride and ego to yeah, uh, be as, as a character. True. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. There's an interesting parallel. You just made me think of something when you were um, talking about like that sort of God complex and then the whole like so i'm curious how much jk rowling was influenced by if she'd ever read tolkien which she likely did coming up through british schooling um because you know he's like a small hero there and like if you think of think about some of the elements in harry potter that are very quite similar like this dark lord that's been cast down and hidden right and but still has influence and and is slowly throughout the books bleeding through right and it's kind of i just i don't know what you said that made me think about it i'm like huh i'm curious and now that i start thinking about there's lots of parallels lots of parallels i'm curious harry Harry potter's a a strange combination of lord of the rings and star wars almost like yeah yeah (laughs) hits the story beats in very similar ways with some differences but yeah, her great yeah. character is Snape. Like that's a her yeah. own creation. Yeah. And, oh, and, yeah. but a lot of the characters in Harry Potter though are kind of like archetypes based on like you know fantasy uh, novels. Uh, yeah, novels. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and she's and if you look, and I always make the claim that if anyone's seen Young Sherlock Holmes, that's very much like yeah, just J.K. That's the last like thing that J.K. Rowling saw before she started thinking about those books because it's very mm-hmm. much uh because young sherlock holmes very much owes or or harry potter owes a lot to young sherlock holmes in terms of like character dynamic in terms of like you know who ron harry and uh hermione become in the books that's Mm -hmm. there's a very similar dynamic there and the villain of that movie is a defense against the dark arts teacher yeah so (laughs) yeah yeah the the not to spoil it but that's the it's basically <laughs> if you think about it it's a defense against the dark arts teacher so um so yes uh did uh, is there any other characters or any other plots we need to talk about or, or anything we need to talk about uh return of the king before we get to the wrap-up to be honest i, I kind of feel bad for the orc who's leading the the, the army the guy who has a deformed <laughs> i've always felt bad for him i don't know why i he's evil i know that but at the same time i feel like he is evil because he has a deformed face it's like i i just love the scenes with him where he dodges the the, the giant rock that's coming at him and and he's just like he takes his job very seriously you gotta respect that okay <laughs> I've always found him to be an interesting a, a detail about Return of the King. Like he's not an Urukai, he's not he can't really beat defeating anybody in warfare with Aragorn or Legolas or Gimli, but he knows how to command an army. That's pretty threatening, you know. Yeah, he's the smartest orc out of them all. That's, yeah, uh, I give him that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and the funny story behind that is the orc. Um, they apparently Weta Digital or someone at Weta um, designed him after Harvey Weinstein. Because... <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> because Harvey Weinstein nearly yeah. screwed up the entire Lord of the Rings, like this entire Lord of the Rings trilogy or the making of it. Uh, so yeah, right they... somewhere. Yeah, that's I forgot about that. It's funny. Yeah, so it's very much. I mean, it's mostly rumor, but or alleged, but uh, it th- that's the story that keeps going around is the orc, the ugly orc that's the general is based off of Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
so uh, with that, I mean, they're Aragon. Or, or, sorry, I keep doing this every episode. I say Aragon. Uh, Aragorn. Different um, series. Different <laughs> series. Aragorn um, becomes king. He accepts it. Um, he has a great line for Frodo when he stares back at Gandalf and Legolas. Uh, it, and he's and it's great it's awesome uh they almost lose the darkest okay we got to talk about the darkest moment in this entire trilogy which is uh frodo taking the like accepting the ring and becoming consumed and putting the ring back on to me that's the darkest moment because all the characters are outside they're fighting they're trying to work as a distraction uh in hopes that frodo is either close or in mount doom anyway and Frodo is just like forsaken them. Sam is screaming, getting a concussion, and <laughs> it's a it's a dark moment. Like, and it's such a powerful moment. Everything is just building to this. Gandalf's getting beaten. Legolas is getting like like trying to m- move people around. Uh, Aragorn's fighting a giant or a giant. Um, it's not an orc. It's a um, troll. Troll. Yeah. So. By the way, the troll. So I just found out recently that was meant to be Sauron, like it himself. Mm. Like they were supposed to have like Sauron, like be like an actual character and the and show up at the end, and they were to have Sauron and Aragorn fight in that battle. But they found, but they just didn't. But they ch- decided to change it to a uh, troll because uh it was just much better for it to be for sauron just to be an eye just to be the a flaming eye yeah so bizarre about the books or the book is that in return of the king at the very end uh saruman comes back and invades the shire i think way later on i i didn't read the books i just watched the movies as a kid and i'm like hold on what it was like that's kind of odd and it was it may work in the book because the characters are a bit different. There may be some adjustments to, you know, yeah. but it's always kind of a weird detail to me. that Yeah, when they show back up to the Shire, it's all corrupted because he'd sent yeah. his minions there. So they had to do some cleaning up. It's an interesting twist. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. I can see why they cut that out because there's just way too much going on in this movie as it is. You kind of need to focus it down. <laughs> yeah. 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 When they get back, it's Lobelia, Baggins, and them. They've moved in, and there's there's like bad guys that live in the Shire now, and it's it's. But they clean it up. <laughs> but yeah, there's okay. a there's a whole storyline. I forgot that too. That's in the book. That's not in the in the movie. There. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I understand why they cut it. Uh, trying to think. Uh, I guess one so last thing is um, it but, swept yeah. the Oscars, eleven for eleven. Do you feel like there's a 12th Oscar missing with one of the actors? Like, I would give it to Sean Astin for playing. Sam. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be the 12th Oscar for me is best supporting actor. Um, do you feel like any of the actors should have gotten a uh, a nomination or a win? Um, or is any, <laughs> any award? I guess they swept it, so I guess there's not very many awards left. For <laughs> Aunt, well, Aunt Christy, do you have any comments on that one? <laughs> oh, no. You know, the Oscars always make me mad, so... Yeah. <laughs> They, they got it right do. that year, though. So yeah, they did get it right <laughs> yeah. that year. One of the few. Usually, though, I'm quite disappointed at yeah. this. So. Yeah. Hey, a broken clock is usually right one twice a day. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um. 
but no, for me, it would have been Ian McKellen. Uh, Sean Astin's a good one. Um, I, I mean, but yeah, I just, but yeah, I just, uh, I don't know. I, f- I feel like Ian McKellen got snubbed because, I mean, there's Gandalf is such a legendary character uh, that Ian McKellen has created or just personified as an actor that I mean to not even nominate it or even acknowledge it is just like it, it's just like shameful to me I, I do feel like in terms of it doesn't really matter the awards thing but I do feel like the performances in Lord of the Rings are underrated because it, is, it would be difficult to react the way they do when you're just in front of a green screen or I mean it's in front of other actors but a lot of stuff they're reacting to is not actually there in front of them and they do it better than most other sci-fi fantasy movies I feel like yeah it's more believable but yeah right um and the final thing or the final couple things i will say about this is a the final uh shot shot for the entire trilogy actually was done right after the oscars uh it was so in spring of 2004 they shot more pickup scenes for the extended editions that came out like the year later so Peter Jackson would make a joke later on, like I'm the only director that gets to actually make do reshoots for a movie that won Best Picture. Oh, <laughs> um, interesting. Uh, so, and then my final thought is, uh, I love how like each of the characters that do have arcs, either through the trilogy or through this film, the last thing they get to do is smile or the smile and yeah. look up either for Aragorn he turns and smiles and looks at you know Gandalf and uh everyone because that's the final like turn of his character like the final like whatever was left of Aragorn that we met in the Fellowship of the Ring it's now gone as he turns and goes straight into fighting you know the orcs uh of Mordor like that's that's his final turn. Frodo's is you know when he gets on the ship and looks back at Sam and the and his cousins, uh, and then Sam's like smile comes when he looks up and says, "I'm back," because he actually is back in the Shire. Like he's actually, mm-hmm. yeah. like he's he's free of the journey of the ring. He's freed of the toll and the promise that he made to Gandalf all those years ago. So I, I love that part. Uh, you can make an argument that Gollum also finishes his arc when he smiles and looks at the ring in that yeah. iconic shot. Uh, <laughs> As he goes into the abyss, yeah. Yeah, like, but that, yeah, that's, but to me, I love that the final shot of everyone like finishing their arc is just them smiling and looking up. Like that's the, fin- that's the final of that bit. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, other than that, Howard Shore's score is fantastic. Um, as usual, uh, Into the West by Annie Lennox is uh, is a, I mean, all timer. Um, other than that, um, I'm going to leave it to the floor. Does anyone else have any more uh, comments on Return of the King? I have no like special skits or anything. We're just going to end on an appropriate note. Okay, I have a few things. <laughs> so speaking of Gollum, uh, I, uh, falling with the ring and smiling, uh, one thing that Christie said that like brought something to my mind uh, that I'll touch on in a second. I, I kind of I need to like get kind of set the stage. So like if you think about it, the entire journey of the ring is about uh, from from its creation to its preservation 
to its eventual destruction is caused and motivated by greed. And um, what, so if you think about it, when Gollum discovers, uh, I didn't think about this till she mentioned her Hobbit birthdays and how they give gifts to other people. And when Gollum attacks his friend and he, 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 he has a line where he mentions that it's his birthday and he deserves the ring. And so it's, it, 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 I didn't think about it this way till now, but like culturally, that would be greed consuming his soul in that instant, and in the in the sense that he's demanding something that in their culture would be given away, like that. And so, like that's that's one detail I didn't realize till now. And then, like, kind of going forward and to finally to the end, like the ring is destroyed from Gollum from like. There's that parallel to fellowship, the flashback in Fellowship of Isildur when he goes to destroy the ring with kind of how Frodo, he also rejects destroying it at first. But his rejection of destroying it and Gollum's kind of their little wrestle, uh, little wrestle session is ultimately what leads to it being destroyed. So it's like kind of greed defeated the ring in the end, in a, in a way. Yeah. Yep. Good point. Yep. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely in terms uh, and I then just from, oh, sorry, sorry. Wait. You, you can go christy i'll, I'll come back <laughs> uh, i was just gonna say my only final thought about the whole thing is i i've seen it i don't know a thousand books it feels like turned into movies and most of them are just epic fails just <laughs> totally epic fails and i would always rather have what read the book than watch the movie and that was one of the few that i could say both um just lived up to what I would have ever dreamed of you making in that movie um, and really was true to the stories and just it was it was one of the very very few that I felt did that well and did it um, beyond well so it's kind of my thing all right the only thing I would say is there's a only kind of joke I guess is there's a YouTube channel uh, I think it's called how it should have ended they got really they got really sarcastic and they they said that the 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 fellowship should have just flown in on eagles and dropped the ring into the volcano and and you know i thought that was pretty funny but you know what though the shrieking dragons would have probably fought the eagles in that scenario they they like they thought they knew what they were talking about but you know that that's the only like, so i'm trying to think of parodies of little of the rings and there's not very many parodies as much as like star wars uh yeah <laughs> it's hard to make fun of because it's it's the movies that it's hard to make fun of the movies because they are so like well-constructed and so complete, you know, but. Yeah. And also I think, I, I think there's a point in the books where they mention that the Eagles can't go to the heart of dark, or to a heart of darkness or like, they can't like, that's the reason why they don't fly to them to Smaug or uh, in the Hobbit. So yeah. they can't I, go I, to I like evil places. Me, actually, I've never looked it up, but yeah, it's uh kind of funny detail about lord of the rings the eagle saved the day <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. uh but yeah all right so with that um just with that uh we are through we it's done uh <laughs> we finished we finished the lord of the rings uh for now we are we're we're done well no we're done we're done with the trilogy we're done with the trilogy it's been a great run we love love talking about these movies uh first of all uh, Aunt Christy, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for coming on. <laughs> Thanks for and... inviting me. This was great. <laughs> I don't get to do this very often. <laughs> Just deep movie awesome. dive. Awesome. I appreciate, and I appreciate this so much because I love this so much. And 
Um, and just uh, right now, um, is there anything you need to plug in or if anything you wanted to talk about like um, that is important to you or want to like anything you want to plug in like like social media or just like events or things that are happening um, in your orbit? No, not right now. <laughs> okay. There's so much happening. It's crazy, but no, it's good. It's all good right now. Thank you. All right. No problem. Um, and I'm going to move to Brandon again. Thank you for doing all three of these. Uh, um, but what are your, uh, do you have any plugins as well? Do you have anything you want to promote or anything? Hey, they can find me working at Aldi or writing a paper at home for, for school for, for UNG. I don't know. It's Yeah. I don't use social media that much anymore. So yeah, not much there. All right. And David, uh, what about you? Um, always thank you for doing all these shows. You're welcome. And... Um, you can find me on Twitter at wiser underscore David. And then uh, if you're interested in my blog, uh, it's called Film Assessment. Um, I have It's been a little inactive for a while, but uh, you can go check that out. I, I was... I have Lord of the Rings reviews drafted because I went to go see them at IMAX last year, but I never published them. Maybe I'll, I'll get around to that now that I've have had the refresher of watching them again. Um, so yeah, that's what I got. And you can follow me on Twitter at Movie Kale. Uh, and I'm not sure what we're doing next week. We do have a Halloween ends episode coming very, very soon. Um, other than that, uh, just check my Twitter at MovieKale for more updates on the podcast. Uh, also, I post on Facebook as well. Um, thank you. Thank you all so much. Uh, we will be back very, very soon. Um, and maybe one day we'll do The Hobbit. You know, just one day. You know, one day, <laughs> you know, I've warmed up to the Hob this Hobbit idea. One day we will do it. Um, thanks, everyone. I see in your eyes the same fear that would take the heart of me. A day may come when the courage of man fails. When we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship. But it is not this day. Whatever happens, stay with me. This day, we fight! <laughs>